the Top 10 Archive. A paradox is a question or statement that completely goes against logic. From time travel to the twin paradox, we're giving you our picks for the Top 10 Mind-Blowing Paradoxes. Oh no! Number 10, The Liar's Paradox. The Liar's Paradox is best illustrated with a piece of paper. Written upon it, the line, this sentence is false. Now, follow along. If the line, this sentence is false, is true, then it is indeed false. However, if the sentence claims that it is false, then it must truly be false. Though, if it's false, then it must be true. And there within lies the paradox. It's an ongoing contradiction of conclusions formed by illustrating the common belief about what true and false actually means. And even though the phrase is completely in accordance with grammatical rules, there is no value to determine absolute truth. Well, I get it. It's very clever. Number nine, grandfather's axe paradox, ship. The grandfather's axe, paradoxically, is also known as the ship of Theseus paradox. Imagine you have an object, a ship, or in this example, your grandfather's wood axe. Now, throughout regular use, the axe becomes damaged. First, the handle splits, so you go out and buy a replacement. Later, the head of the axe chips and grinding it down is no longer an option, so you set out to replace it with a new axe head. It's at this point the ancient Greek historian Plutarch raised the question, if the entirety of an object is replaced piece by piece, does it truly remain the same object in question? Number eight, the twin paradox. The twin paradox is a thought experiment dealing with the laws of physics in particular. The paradox involves identical twins, one who stays on Earth and the other who takes a high-speed rocket into space, only to return years later. When the space-traveling twin returns home, he finds that his twin on Earth has aged much more rapidly. The result is puzzling because each twin saw the other twin as moving. Number seven, grandfather paradox. Now this one does get a little tricky as it's based upon the hypothetical concept of time travel and creating inconsistency by altering the past. Even the tiniest change can alter the future in ways you can't imagine. This paradox is also sometimes referred to as Hitler's murder paradox. A time traveler goes back in time to kill his grandfather before he would meet his grandmother. As a direct result, the time traveler would never have existed in the first place to make the trip. So, if he never existed, he could never go back in time and murder his grandparent, resulting in his undesired birth in the first place. Number six, Zeno's error. Okay, that's enough. All right. Um, welcome to Echo. Thought I would give you just a taste of uh, the things to come. And there's a speaker in my way. Uh, Great. So before we get started, I need to, um, to go over just a few announcements that we need to make that are not in your um, bulletin that you've got. So a few things. Number one, Easter. Uh, we've decided a little bit, last minute, I'll admit, in two weeks we have Easter, which is great. Um, we're going to do an Easter egg hunt, and it'll be over at Boyd Park, which is the park right over here. It's uh, three blocks away. It's where we have Echo in the park. And uh, we'll be needing some eggs. And when I say eggs, I'm talking about the plastic kind filled with candy. And uh, what we'll do is this, is we will collect those and we'll have, actually, I've already talked with Yancey and uh, who else? Oh, yeah. Thanks. Um, I've got a team, essentially, that we're putting together that will go out there and set up 
the park and make sure that it's ready to go. I told Yancy to be nice to the children who are trying to get on early, you know, that kind of thing. And then we'll have the grill out there. We'll um, move our potluck from the 23rd, which is scheduled for this month, to the 16th, which is Easter. And uh, we'll just have lunch out in the park if you're able to make it. Now, if you, have, if you already have plans, I understand. But if you don't, it would be great if you could come out to the park. We'll have an Easter egg hunt for the neighborhood. And we'll just see what God does with that. All right? So that's the, the first thing that you need to know. The second thing that you need to know is that the registration for our posture shift conference, which is by Lead Them Home, uh, that will be on the 29th. Great, you got the slide up there. The registration is about to go live, and it's taken a while to put the registration up for a number of reasons. Um, I want to just thank Jasmine for helping me out. We, we're sending it out to a number of pastors. You'll be able to go on that particular site. Um, we'll send out the link to everybody here. That will be available as of tomorrow. But listen, I told you before that Echo members get in for free, so you got to pay attention to this. You might have to write this down. There is a promo code that you can put in, and the promo code is all capital letters, and it is Echo, with no space, member, okay, 2017. That's it. Echo member, 2017. You put that in, and it'll come up. You don't have to pay a dime. Please don't share that with your friends, all right? It's just... <laughs> Just use it for yourself. Um, we have lots of interest. I've been connecting with a number of different pastors. I did again this week. Um, people are waiting for it, and they're ready for that link. We're four weeks out, and I, I'll, I'll admit, I'm a tiny bit nervous. I, uh, not because it's an event. I've done plenty of events, but just because of the nature of this event. But uh, every time I speak with a pastor, it, it spirals into an enormous conversation which tells me that this is a very loaded subject, and there's lots to discuss. And so I hope you can make it on, uh, on April 29th. Today's lesson uh, begins a series, and the series is called The Paradox of the Passion. And before we dive into this, I do want to have a prayer. Today's lesson, um, man, I've been, I've been working on this lesson since, I think it was December. Uh, and so it's, it's, I'm a little bit nervous to deliver it. I want to make sure that we're delivering it right and that you understand things fully. But also I want to make sure that your hearts are open. So if there's something that you're dwelling on at this time, I'm going to ask you to dismiss it from your thoughts and please pray with me. Gracious God, Father in heaven, Jesus repeatedly would say to his disciples and those around him that if uh, their hearts are ready, that they would be able to hear his words. He who has ears, let him hear. God, whatever sin that one of us or each of us or all of us are carrying in our hearts at this time, whatever we have not confessed or repented of, may we do it at this moment or maybe at least push it aside, open up our hearts, do not close us up. Each one of us, Lord, comes before you now. We just ask that you allow us to hear words from your word. Be with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as a younger uh, adult, um, you know, a few years ago, uh, I, there was a movie that uh, always, I, I struggled with it quite a bit. And maybe you, you'll be able to relate. It was a movie called Terminator. Actually, it was Terminator 2. Uh, and it's one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's best movies. It is rated R, so please. Mm. But uh, I, I saw it on TV for, for the first time, so it was edited. All right, so if you can get that version, great. But uh, Terminator's an interesting film. 
And, and I'm not going to give everything away, but I am going to explain the premise to you. The premise is awesome. There's a robot war, and it's set in the future. And things are not going well for humanity. And so the, the robots are controlling everything. And then finally, the humans get this bright idea. Hey, what if we use our incredible knowledge to build a time machine, which they do, and we will send someone back in time. They will find out whatever germ of thought created the first robot, okay, and we'll destroy that robot or we'll destroy that technology. And that way, there never will be a robot nation trying to kill us. And so that's what they do. They send back a guy, right, to destroy the origins of these robots. Well, the robots hear about this, and so they do it too. They're like, well, we'll send back our robot too, and he'll destroy your guy. Anyway, great premise. Very exciting. Had a lot of fun with the movie. Except, in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, that's stupid. Because if you destroy the robot that started this whole thing, then there would never be a robot army, so there would never really be a war which means you'd really never have a reason to go back in time to destroy the origin of the robots, which means it would never happen, which means there would be a bunch of robots, which means there would be a war. You see what I'm saying? And I couldn't get out of that. It's that loop. And it's exactly what they explained in this thing called the grandfather paradox. In other words, if you start thinking about it, you just keep going to, into the circular reasoning. Now, for many of us, probably most of us, especially if you're left brain, this kind of stuff drives you nuts. Right? It seems like a complete waste of time, and why would you even try? For somebody like myself, who's very right brain and I like to ponder, heck, I'd spend two hours just staring at a paper that said the sentence is false. You know, it's like I would go over and over and over. In some ways, especially for the artistic people, you know, we would hang stuff on our walls. It would make us, you know, just think about it. Yep, M.C. Escher. And for other movies like Inception, a paradox kind of comes in nicely. And for movies like Terminator. But what about on a spiritual level? Is there any value to a paradox on a spiritual level? And so I'm going to argue today and for the next three weeks that there is. Why would it be so important for us to look at something that we could never really quite wrap our mind around? You know, the definition of a paradox um, well, actually, there were several, but I like this particular definition. It says a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to well be true, right? But it's absurd. So why park on this idea of a paradox, especially leading up to Easter? Because the Bible is filled with paradox, and so what we're going to do is this. We're going to look at a number of different paradoxes, and I think that the value for Christians especially to, to, to land on that paradox and think about it is that it does two things that I can think of. Number one, it brings a sense of humility. Because many times the paradox that we don't understand, God understands perfectly. And so it puts us in our place. The second reason has to do with uh, what Psalm 27 alludes to. It says, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of my Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in his temple. And what a paradox allows us to do is to simply meditate, and to ponder, and to think. And it's kind of a fun way to think. And so I encourage you now to think about the paradox that we're going to talk about today, it comes at the beginning. We've heard this during Christ, uh, Christmas, 
at John chapter 1, and I'm going to be in John chapter 1, verse 14, which says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The paradox for today is this. Who was Jesus? He was God, and He was man. He was the Word in the flesh. So how do we relate to that? How do we look at this paradox of these two entities that really, if you think about it, should be at war with each other? Really, if you think about it, one kind of compromises the other, right? So what do we do with that? First John says this. It says, by this we know that we are in him. The one who says that he abides in him, that's Jesus, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So this is, this is the problem that I have always struggled with with Christianity. It's one of the reasons that I even began to really think and ponder on this particular subject. We have bracelets that say, what would Jesus do? We read scriptures like this in 1 John that say we ought to walk in the manner that he walked. And as you'll, as you'll hear later on, the comparison between Jesus Christ and us is made quite often, especially in Hebrews. But how in the world... Are we supposed to do that? Like, how in the world are we supposed to measure ourselves up to that level of Jesus Christ? Are you kidding me? There's a professor named Dan Spader, and he says these words. He says, and one young man said to me after a class, Dr. Spader, you state over and over again that we should do what Jesus did. Well, I like what you are saying. My problem is simply this. He was God. I am not. Right? Do you find yourself in that spot? You see, the tendency is this. We want to think that we're acting like Christ, but many times in the back of our mind, we put God and Jesus Christ in a box way high up on a shelf that we really can't touch. So how are we to do that? Well, first of all, let's look at the full deity of Christ. So in John chapter 1, which is where I was before, um, it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 8, uh, the Jews are saying to Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old. So I don't know if he looked like he was 50 years old. Anyway, he was in his 30s. Um, you're not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And immediately they picked up rocks and they were going to kill him. Why would they do that? Because that's blasphemy. To put yourself for a man, to put themselves on the same plane as God, and to say that I am, and to use that language, especially at this particular time, heresy, right? And enough that they would even try to kill him because of it. And he's referring, of course, um, to Exodus chapter 3. In John 10, he says this, I and the Father are one. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus received worship as God. Jesus was crucified because of his claims to be God. In Philippians 2, it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So even though he was in the form of God, and Colossians 2.9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Isn't it obvious that Jesus is God. It says it over and over and over. 
throughout Scripture. Well, as the church began, and I'll, I'll tell you in a couple of weeks, probably, well, in three weeks, so I'll talk to you a little bit about Israel. I got to stand on the steps where, where Peter preached his lesson. In fact, I sent a picture here to Echo as well, uh, where Peter taught his Acts 2 lesson, and the, and the church just went off like wildfire. But in the midst of that, there was a lot of heresy. In the midst of that, there were false teachers that would come in. Uh, the apostle John would later write to um, what he calls a, a woman of God, um, these words, he would say, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And because of this, what would happen is in that particular time, different religions would, would rise up. There was one called uh, Docetism. I've been calling it Docetism for a long time, so I'm just going to call it that. It's easier for me to say, but D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, Docetism, or Docetism, all right? Uh, and that was the religion, and the religion was this, and it came in those early centuries with the church. It was that God, if he truly was God, and if he truly did send his son, there's no way that God could continue to be God and have the corruption of man. So the idea that God and man could exist in the same form, that little paradox, no way. Now you can imagine a lot of this thought probably came out of the Greeks who had a lot of different gods at that time, and they liked to keep their gods in a special place cut off and separate from men. So that's what we had was this religion that was finding its way in, this, this training, this train of thought that would, uh, that would come in. And what happened was is that in AD 325, there was a council. Now, what happened, what I, what I like, if you study early church history, it's really fun. Because as you're watching the church grow, especially around the Mediterranean and then in North Africa, you would find these little hot spots of Christianity, Alexandria, all right, and, and these different spots. And what would happen is a, a heresy like this would come up, and so the Christians throughout the area would say, okay, we got we to gotta talk about this. In today's times, we would say, well, we got to put on a conference, right? So we, they'd put on a conference, and they'd all come together, and they would call it a council. And they would, all their smartest people would come in, and they would argue and debate the truth or perhaps the lack of truth of a particular subject. And this was the subject for the first council of Nicaea. And in the first council of Nicaea in AD 325, they finally said, enough with the docetism. That's it. We are going to reject it. God sent his son. His son was God, and his son was man. That's it. Unfortunately, that wasn't it. <laughs> and it would continue to sort of permeate because it's hard. It's difficult to wrap your mind around, especially for a number of believers. But here's what I'm going to tell you is that I believe this idea of docetism still exists today. And I also believe, unfortunately, that a number of Christians are guilty. They don't know it, or at least I hope they don't know it, but they put Jesus in a spot where they're not going to allow him to have the limitations of what it means to be human. It almost feels like heresy to suggest that Jesus would have limitations. So the way that you see it, is in, is in the way that Christians look at Jesus as unrelatable, right? As the one student said, he was God, I'm man. How can I relate to any of that? He was sinless. That gets in our way all the time. Gets in my way. Well, Jesus was sinless. 
Of course he did great. He was perfect, right? He was incapable. Was he? Was he incapable of not being tempted to sin? You, you can look in Matthew 4 if you want to explore that. So what was he capable of and what was he not capable of? Hebrews 2 tells us this, for this reason, he had to be made like them, like us. This is Jesus, had to be made like us, fully human in every way. So Hebrews is saying, hey, he was fully human in every way. So how does that work? Well, first, let's do the easy part. It's easy to describe certain aspects of Jesus's humanity. So here are a few that you you probably already understand and, and already know. He was conceived and born of a woman, right? Matthew chapter 1. Right? Luke chapter 1. He experienced emotions and sensations the same as anybody else. He became hungry. He became thirsty. Once again, think about the the temptation that that Satan has in Matthew chapter 4. He grew in wisdom and stature. This is from Luke chapter 2. He grew weary and he slept. He got tired. John chapter 4, Matthew chapter 8. He felt sorrow. He, he felt grief, especially when a friend died in Luke 22. Hebrews 4 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, the things that I just read to you, I think we would pretty much agree. Those are human attributes that Jesus experienced. But now we're going to get to the hard part. You ready? Buckle up. Would you agree that God knows all things? I mean, obviously he does. It's this little word. It's a Bible word that we use, omniscient. Right? God is omniscient. Well, Jesus is God. So is Jesus omniscient. Did he know everything? See, I would tell you that he did not. Doesn't that sound terrible? (laughs) You know, to to even say those words, it's kind of like I have this little lump in my chest. Oh, my goodness, you got to be careful what you're saying. To say that Jesus didn't know everything, are you sure? Well, think about it. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is actually, what's great about Matthew 24, Jesus is actually prophesying. We're talking about not knowing stuff. He knew a lot. Okay, so I'm, I'm not saying he didn't know anything. I'm saying he knew quite a bit. And so he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and in the end times and maybe a little bit of both. And you can talk to my dad more about that later, you know, depending on how you, how you read about it. But then in the midst of it, in Matthew 24 and verse 36, are these words. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Well, now that's interesting. So he's given this whole prophecy, but nobody knows, not even angels, not even Jesus. Look, I, I'm not making this stuff up. That's literally what it says. Yesterday we were at a conference with Frank Gunn. Went amazing. How, how many times did Frank say this? Wouldn't it be amazing if we actually thought that Jesus meant what he said? <laughs> you know, I love that phrase. I love that phrase. Right? Okay, what about this example? There's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Now, I don't know what that means. I really don't want to explore it. Let's just say that she's been bleeding for 12 years, and nothing can fix her. And so Jesus is walking through a crowd. This is in Luke chapter 8, if you want to look it up. But he's walking through a crowd, and all of a sudden, he's like, whoa, hey, someone touch me. 
And Peter's great. Peter's like, Lord, there are lots of people pressing in. Probably more than one person touched you, you know. And, and, and Jesus literally says, he says these words. No, someone touched me because I felt the power leave me. So here's my question. Does he really not know? Is he bluffing? I mean, is there a lesson in here that he's trying to give to his disciples? And if so, what is it? And why don't we have it recorded? Or is it possible that he really didn't know? Is he omniscient? Think about this. When uh, his cousin John, and I love the way Jesus talks about John the Baptist. He does it with such reverence. And you can see the love that he has for John and the respect that he has for John. But John the Baptist met his fate, well, by way of acts, probably, in terms of getting his head cut off. He was beheaded. And this was during the time of Jesus' ministry. It says that his disciples went and got John's body and buried it. But then it says that the disciples reported it to him. And that's how he found out. He had no idea. You can look it up. It's in Matthew chapter uh, 14. Uh, he had no clue, at least the way that the scripture describes it, that his own cousin, really, was murdered. And the way that it hits him is, is noteworthy because he suddenly finds himself in a state of, I don't know if you could call it shock, but he's definitely mourning, and he draws away. And it's at that spot that he is saddened. Not at the moment of execution, but at the moment of learning about it. I'll give you another one. Uh, the fact that he grew up in wisdom and stature. This is in Luke chapter 2. We're talking about little baby Jesus that's now growing up as a teenager, etc., etc., etc. I'm told, and one of these days I'm going to read this, a, a collection of books called the Apocrypha, that some, somewhere in the Apocrypha, do you know? Um, in the Apocrypha, it talks about Jesus' life as a little boy. And I have no idea. I hear somewhere in there. What is it? Gospel of Thomas. All right. So I don't encourage you to just rush out to your library. You probably won't find a Bible in your library anyway. But, uh, so, uh, but in the Gospel of Thomas, right, he's talking about Jesus as a little boy and about some kid that, was, um, that offended him. And so he made him mute or something. I have no idea. But uh, who knows? The Apocrypha we haven't canonized, so it, it may not be the authoritative word of God. But still, as he's growing, we do have these words which come out of the Gospel of Luke, which has been canonized in the sense of it is the word of God. Luke 2.52 talks about Jesus is growing in wisdom and stature. Well, by nature, if you're growing in something, that means later in time you are learning things that earlier in time you didn't know. Now, if it just said stature, I would be like, oh, okay, big deal. You know, he grew physically. But it says wisdom, right? All right, one more. Um, Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 15, everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Everything that I've learned from my Father. And that is a phrase that you'll find all over the place. Jesus prays to the Father, he beseeches the Father, and he talks about the Father as though, guess what? This is what the Father has willed through me. This is what I learned from the Father. In other words, that relationship that exists of God and Jesus is such that God seems to know things that Jesus doesn't, and he conveys it through Jesus, right? And it's interesting to me. Is it possible is it possible that Jesus was limited as a human being in terms of 
aspects of his deity. All right, do you know what the word omnipotent means? It means all-powerful, right? You could do anything. And sometimes we separate ourselves from Jesus Christ and we put him on the shelf because we're like, oh, please. He can do anything he wants. <laughs> the guy walked on water, right? He can do anything he wants. Can he? Well, in Mark chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, this is when Jesus is talking about his return home. He says, you know, a, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And the word is could not. Now, if you look at the parallel translations, you'll find that Matthew's version, for example, it says would not, right? But I love the commentary that comes from McLaren's ex exposition. He says these words. Um, he says there is another limitation of Christ. Or he said this is another limitation of Christ's nature. But also, he wondered as at an astonishing or an unexpected thing. We read that he marveled twice. Once at great faith and once at great unbelief. The centurion's faith was marvelous, but the Nazarene's unbelief was just as marvelous. And you can look back in that verse. You see how he says that he marveled, well, um, at their disbelief. I don't know if I included that in there. But this idea that Jesus would be shocked or, or, or surprised. But he couldn't do miracles there. What about presence? God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, right? Continually everywhere. We have psalms that depict this in, in ways. Was Jesus. Wasn't it interesting how Jesus wasn't able to be next to Lazarus to keep him from dying? He had to approach Lazarus after he was already dead. And in John chapter 11, you see Martha saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she's showing the faith that she has, but she's saying, listen, you weren't here. Is there a limitation in what he has? You see the same thing in Luke 8 when he uh, is trying to get to Jairus' daughter. What does all this mean? We can sum up the paradox this way. If you turn over to Philippians chapter 2, I think we have that also on the slide. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, this is Paul writing, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, so I'm going to give you an analogy to help you kind of think about this. All right. Imagine that there's a king. All right. And the king has these royal robes and stuff, and he sits on his throne, and he's, and, you know, and he's enjoying his kingdom, and maybe he has a great view, but he can have anything he wants. If he's hungry, you know, he gets food, right? If he needs somebody to, uh, I don't know, if, he, if someone needs to die, you know, he can snap his fingers, and that's it. They're done, you know. If he needs his wife, you know, that, anything he wants. And uh, it's like that's, that's always a possibility. But at one time, he walks out. And he goes to the balcony and he looks down at his kingdom and he sees in the streets that there are slums, that there are poor people, and that there are people who are hurting. And he begins to have compassion. And he thinks, I really want to help these people. So what I'll do is I'll dwell among them. So he takes off his royal robe and he puts on some type of burlap or whatever it is that the beggars in the street are wearing at that time. 
He makes sure that he doesn't smell very good. You know, he really humbles himself and dirties himself up. And then he goes down and he dwells among the people. And he gets spat on and he gets beaten and all this other kind of stuff, just like anyone else. My question to you, is he still the king? Of course he's still the king. Does he still have authority over his kingdom? Absolutely. At any second, he could snap his fingers once again and have soldiers come in, right? 10,000 of them, <laughs> right? But what is he doing? He's living in such a way that he has willingly limited himself so that he has chosen not to exercise everything that he could. Now, this is really, really important. Because I do believe that that is what we see with Jesus Christ. And putting on his humanity and in limiting himself in terms of what he's capable of as someone who has all authority. Because he says that, I have all authority. The Father has given me all authority, right? But he's allowed himself not to have all authority in terms of, or at least not to exercise all authority. It doesn't destroy his nature. It doesn't destroy his deity. But it does allow him to be more human like you and me. Second Corinthians says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So that through his poverty you might become rich. So why, why all of this? What's the importance of understanding this paradox? So I'm going to give you a few things. Number one, oh, whoa, I've got to be careful not to mess up my notes. All right, number one, Jesus did not dip into his deity to live out his humanity. Now, I ran out of time. I really wanted to put together a credit card that had God's name on it, and the number was like 777777, you know, that kind of thing. And I would even call it MasterCard. Clever, right? So, you know, but there's this credit card, right? And it's not like God told Jesus, okay, so here's the credit card. You know, just use it, keep your receipts, and get back to me. You know, that, but sometimes I think that's what we think that Jesus was capable of just using the God card whenever he wanted to. He comes up to the, to the lake, you know, and, and he's going to walk across the water. Why did he do that? Is it because he was like, oh, I really don't want to get wet. Who's going to see? You know, I mean, it's like, is that really what happens? Did he ever use his powers in such a way? I'd say the closest way, the closest one would probably be the first one, the first miracle that we have, which is what? Water into wine. I love talking about that because it's the power of a mom. You know, she's like, you know what to do. And then to his, her servants, he knows what to do. Just do what he tells you to do. You know, and walks out. Doesn't even get a confirmation. He's like, my time's not ready yet. Fine. You know, that's as close as it gets that I can see in using the guard, God card in a, in a way that, you know. But even then it was recorded for a reason. Even then the glory of God was seen, Right. I would argue that his miracles were part of his mission. In other words, the reason that he's having to create and to do all sorts of different miracles wasn't to show necessarily that he was God. I do think it points to him being God, but it was to show himself as being the Messiah. And there is a difference. There's a difference. The mission that Jesus had came from the will of the Father. And all that he did, all that he said came from God. Jesus was the conduit 
that allowed those things to happen. It's not that Jesus just decided, well, you know, this would be a good place for a miracle. Isn't it interesting how many lame and blind people he actually walked by? Have you thought of that? How many times did he go to the temple? And yet it's almost right before he's offered up that he actually starts healing people who are sitting outside the temple. He probably walked by many times. The will of the Father is what's dictating this. He didn't just use his deity to live out his humanity. And he could have. I think Satan knew this. In Matthew chapter 4 that I keep talking about, here's what happened. Satan is going to tempt Jesus, and he gets three shots at it, right? And because Jesus had been fasting, he found himself really, really hungry. In Matthew chapter 4, it says after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So the tempter came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Well, now there is a perfect opportunity to use the God card. I mean, why not? Is he capable? Of course he's capable. Is he hungry? Absolutely. But that's the temptation. See, Satan's crafty. I think what Satan's doing is he's trying to rob Jesus of the very humanity that he's committed himself to. And so he doesn't do it. What about his miracles? You know, we see him using miracles all the time. But where did those come from? Weren't they done in submission to the Father? Doesn't Jesus make that clear over and over and over? Listen to this verse coming out of John chapter 5. Jesus said, gave them this answer. Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing by himself. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what his Father is doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. John 14, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Once again, the evidence. And what's he talking about? He's talking about these miracles. He's talking about the things that he's doing. That's what he's giving them, a snapshot of the nature of what it means to be the Messiah and the Messiah who is going to deliver all people. Can you see how this sets us up for Easter? All right. Even his teaching, directed by God, Jesus said, my teaching's not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. So the first thing is, Jesus did not dip into his deity to live out his humanity. Number two, we have to remember this. There is comfort to be found in a Messiah that knows what humanity is like. He had the same emotions as you and as me. And I feel like we cut him off so many times thinking that he never felt desperation. Did he feel loneliness? I've got a great one for you. Was he ever lost? Our omniscient God, right? Was he ever lost? Did Jesus ever ask for directions, right? Was he ever confused? See, I would argue that he was. I would argue that as part of his limitations living among the people, he allowed himself to experience those things. Hebrews tells us that he related in every sort of way. Because sometimes when you're lost and when you're confused, if you take that to the next level in terms of spirituality, it creates desperation. And I believe that Jesus was there. I believe that's what his prayer was in the, in the garden. My God, my God, right? Is there any other way that this cup could pass? And we'll get to that later. 
He showed us how to live as humans. He showed us what it meant to be fully dependent and fully reliant upon God. And he experienced what we experience. But he still was able to surrender to the Father. Hebrews 2, because he suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are also tempted. Number three. Here's, here's, here's one of my favorite parts. The resources. This is why you have to hone in on the humanity of Jesus Christ. The humanity that we share with him. He didn't necessarily use extraordinary resources. He did in accordance to the mission of God. But think about the resources that he had. Are they not the same resources that we have? We'll start with the Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Every aspect of Jesus' life was saturated with the Holy Spirit. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, for crying out loud. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Luke 4 says he was filled with, this, with the Spirit. He was sealed by the Spirit. Luke 4 also says that he was led by the Spirit. He performed powers by the power of the Spirit. We see the work of the Spirit throughout Jesus' life. Let me tell you this right now. It's the same, same Holy Spirit that lives within you. Your mission is different. And you are a sinful creature, but you've been washed by Jesus' blood. It's the same spirit that's within you. Sometimes I feel as though we limit it because we put the Holy Spirit on that same shelf with our docetism. The second resource that he had is prayer. I'm not going to get into this too much because I'm going to be talking about this next week, but Jesus withdrew and prayed often. <laughs> Luke chapter 5. I mean, and, and if you have a disciple like Peter, you, you know you're going to withdraw often. You know, it's like he was always leaving. And so we see that all the time. But he found prayer to be his source of, str of strength. The third resource that we have is the Word of God. There are at least 90 times where Jesus is in a situation where he refers to Old Testament, where he refers to prophecy. He used the word of God and he let it flow through him continually. One of the things we learned in the workshop from Frank is that if we're to have discipleship groups, it is going to involve, heavily involve the word of God to such a degree that it becomes memorized. It becomes written on our hearts. This is why Jesus had these things written on his heart. And you're like, yeah, well, of course, he knew. he's the one. He's the author. Right. How do you know that he didn't have to grow learning scripture just like all the other Jews? And then the fourth resource he had were his disciples and the church. I think it's interesting how he the way he refers to his disciples in, in the book of John always changes. It starts off as kind of as followers, and it grows to this idea of servants. And then by John 15, he's calling them friends. And believe it or not, by John chapter 20, he calls them brothers. Do we not have the exact same resource? I mean, I know Echo's been around for three and a half years, and I talk about the tenacity of many of you because you've been here the whole time. What a source of strength for me personally because it's like we've been on this journey, right? And we're walking this journey. And the last thing that I want to say to you is this. If we put Jesus in a place where we don't explore his humanity and relate to it. And we put him way over here as, you know, God that doesn't get to be touched. We will, we will underestimate what God wants to do through each of us.
we will underestimate what God wants to do through each of us. There were seven times at least where Jesus rebuked his disciples for their lack of faith. <laughs> there was twice where he said, are you still so dull? <laughs> okay, because he keeps, he keeps reprimanding them in terms of their lack of faith, right? And their, their capacity to not just understand, but to believe and to have faith in who he was and who he was capable of being. Many times he would also get on their case and he would just simply tell them, you should ask, just ask. He said this quite a bit in the uh, upper room before he was to be sacrificed in Luke chapter 14 through 16. He uses the word ask all the time. In James chapter 4, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Listen, just because we're human, just because we have messed up backgrounds, parents, circumstances, just because we go through a plethora of emotions that are not exactly, what would we say, godly, right? Or maybe because our identity is rooted in things it shouldn't be, should not separate us from the humanity of who Jesus was. As you look at this paradox of what it means to be a God-man, it will set you up for Easter really, really well if you can understand what happened on the Passion Week to a God-man who is in many ways, most ways, I would say, just like you. In conclusion, I told you that docetism didn't actually die. <laughs> Another council was convened 150 years later at a place called Chalcedon. And the council came to this conclusion. We, as is Christians, we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, we teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhood and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhood and consubstantial with us according to the manhood and all things like unto us, but without sin. Listen, don't compromise the humanity of Jesus Christ. Relate to it. Realize that what he went through, you probably go through. You've got the same resources at your fingertips. So don't allow yourself to hold yourself to some imaginary standard that you created. Help, help yourself remember who you're trying to exemplify. Go back in Scripture. And read what he does. If he prays, then pray. If he teaches, then teach. If he has faith or if he's modeling a type of um, you know, disciple building, I don't know, teaching, then do it. I appreciate you guys. I hope you, you were able to hear all the words that I gave you. I, I, you can understand why I started with prayer. <laughs> Uh, these are tough things sometimes to grasp. But if we're going to deliver the gospel to a, uh, to a world that desperately needs it, they need to understand that the way that they're living their life right now relates to Jesus Christ. You want to talk to me more about it afterwards? Please let me know. I'd be happy to. Let's bow. Gracious God, I thank you so much for who Jesus was. I thank you for the fact that you, God, 
were in him and that he was fully made up of you and full deity. But Lord, I also thank you for this crazy notion that he would also be completely, fully human. That he would go through embarrassments, that he would perhaps be shy at times, or maybe he would feel what it, what it means to be lonely or rejected or desperate. God, help us to attach ourselves to that humanity. Help us to surround ourselves with the same resources he had. Stir your spirit within us. Allow us to do great and powerful things. He told his disciples that they would do greater things than him. Maybe that's us. But Lord, whatever we do, may it all bring you glory. And as Jesus prayed his last prayer, may we have that same prayer that you be glorified through how you've made us and how you've led us, how you've redeemed us through Jesus. Allow us to bring these truths to a tough city and help us to see that nobody is outside of the power of this gospel. I love you so much, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. being in a small room in a secret location it's packed with brothers and sisters who've gathered together at the risk of their lives one little light bulb hanging in the middle they've got their Bibles open ready to study the word knowing that if they're caught doing this they could lose land they could lose property possessions they could be imprisoned eventually they could lose their lives but they believe this word is worth it they want to know God, and they want to be a part of the mission of God in the community and the country where they live, even though they know it's costly. This is the scene in which Secret Church was born. I came back from settings like that into the setting where I pastor, where by God's grace we have the opportunity to worship freely, to study His Word freely. But I, I wonder, do we love the word like this? Do we want to know the word like this? And so we set aside a night, we called it the Secret Church, where we said we're going to dive into the study of God's word in depth. And at the same time, we're going to pray. We're going to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, and we're going to pray for ourselves that God would give us the kind of boldness that he's giving them. Secret Church has grown in ways we never could have imagined since that first gathering to where now literally people all around the world through simulcast come together on this one night to dive into the Word, to say we want to know God. We're going to spend intensive time studying His Word. And in the process, we're going to fall on our faces. We're going to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world that we need to pray for. And we're going to pray for ourselves that God would give us grace and boldness to join with them in making this word known around the world, no matter what it costs us. That's the purpose of Secret Church, to know the word of God, to pray for the spread of the gospel around the world alongside our persecuted brothers and sisters. And we pray that as a result of Secret Church, we would be compelled to give our lives to knowing him and making him known, no matter what it costs us.
right, so that is Secret Church. As you can see, it's going to be on April 21st on a Friday. Uh, more info will come soon, as in a location and time and all that stuff. They're working diligently on that. we got a group doing that, so thank you for doing that, setting it up. I'm really excited. I will be there. It's going to be great. Uh, also, you all are invited to the YFC Banquet. That is next week, and it is Saturday, April 8th. And you can sign up on yfcmt.com. Please do that. Uh, I mean, right, I can invite them. Are, are they welcome to come? Okay, they're nodding their heads that, yes, you are welcome to come. And it's free. There's no cost. Uh, you know, if you feel like giving, it's your choice to give, or you can just enjoy the food um, enjoy what the mission of YFC is. So I invite you into that. Also, if you are not aware, there's an Empower to Connect conference that is the 7th and 8th. So it's both Friday and Saturday. It's up at Missoula Alliance Church, and it's $20 for that. Uh, it's a great conference. I mean, we used the tools from that at Impact for uh, middle school last year, and it, it changed the way that we dealt with um, with the kids, and it changes the way that you see people and the way that they grow up and the way they experience uh, life and emotional trauma, things like that, and how we behave. It's just incredibly interesting and super helpful. So if you're interested, check that out. They have it on Missoula Alliance's website. Uh, any other announcements about events or anything that I might have missed? Nada. All right. Oh, happy birthday, Chris. Is it your birthday today, Chris? Is it Chris's birthday today? It's Chris's birthday today. We should sing happy birthday, right? That's a fair thing to do. All right, let's sing happy birthday. Ready? Everyone together. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Chris. Happy birthday to you. Woo! Happy birthday, Chris. I have the best gift for you. Alex, get up here. Get up here. Come on. Come on. This is your chance. Come on, Alex. Everybody, get them up here. Let's go. Come on, Alex. Come on. You just took longer than the joke would take to say. <laughs> get up here. Come here. Come on. I'll bring the mic to you. you my word. All right, say the joke. Here's your birthday present, Chris. Happy birthday. Say the joke, JD. Oh, my word. I don't know. This is ridiculous. Okay, happy birthday. So if I went on a trip to Israel and had a really good time, I'd come back and say, Israeli fun. <laughs> Why couldn't you say it? You, you do it so much better. All right, there's your joke. Happy birthday. <laughs> all right. Thank you guys for being here today. Appreciate all our visitors. Hang out, get to know us. We're weird and we're fun and it's a good thing. So will you join with me in prayer? Holy God, we thank you. I give you praise and glory. I give you all the, all the credit for uh, laughter and joy and for love and peace. You truly bestow on us. And this world would be so horrible without you and what you inject into it, the goodness that you are. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for JD and helping us to understand that I can have a better relationship with you because you know me. Like, you know my humanity. You, you experienced it. Like, you sat in these moments where I am tempted, and you know exactly, like, you felt it. 
And that's how we can relate. And I can pray to you and you can understand completely what's going on. That is an amazing thing. We have an amazing God. We have an amazing Messiah. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.